Hi, this is Katie, and this is Staying Connected. Today on the line, I have Deborah, whose son has vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Uh, you want to say hi, Deborah? Hi. Hi. Um, tell me about your son, Soren. How, how old is he? He is nine years old right now. All right. And I remember you were telling me about a story um, struggling, you know, before you knew that he had VEDS or vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome of him in the car one day. Can you, can you tell me that story? Sure. Um, I was taking my, one of my uh, nephews to school and Soren was buckled in his car seat in the back seat and he starts making a lot of noise. And I, I could tell he wasn't necessarily in distress, but something wasn't right. Uh, it didn't sound pained, but, uh, I could tell that something wasn't right. And so I looked in my rear view mirror and, um, it looked like a horror show in the back. Uh, he was covered head to toe in blood. And, um, I knew it was a nosebleed instantly because he had started having nosebleeds that would happen. Um, my other two children never really had nosebleeds that would just kind of spontaneously happen without getting bumped in the nose or having a really bad cold in the middle of winter. So, uh, I pulled over and I called my brother-in-law who's a physician and said, Am I taking this kid to get his nose cauterized? I don't know what, what I'm supposed to do because clearly it's tons of blood. And and um, so he told me, you know, I should be pinching it to apply pressure and don't lean him back because you don't want him choking on the blood. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that he uh, gets that stopped. And he, he ended up stopping within like a minute or two of me pinching his nose. But it was it was pretty it was pretty intense because I'd never seen that much blood just from a nosebleed before. And how old was he when this happened? Do you remember? Um, I would say he was probably like two years old. So, um, you know, he he could talk, but not like vocalize really what the heck was going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's two. <laughs> yeah. So um, that wasn't the only problem that he had growing up, right? What else was there? So um, thankfully, he was my third kid. And um, my other two had come along without much issues. I breastfed my babies. And as I was going through, like he came out uh, maybe one or two weeks early, uh, but he came out normal weight, like seven pounds, 15 ounces, normal length, um, everything about, it was a C-section, everything about it went, you know, totally fine, no issues at all. Um, and then he started to drop his weight and I didn't know what I was doing wrong. Uh, my father had died, um, just right before Soren was born. So I worried, was it stress? Was I not producing enough milk? So I went on Reglin that's supposed to help with milk production. Um, I got a lactation counselor to come in and try to help me kind of, uh, troubleshoot it. But we, we hooked up like straws up to my breasts, uh, so that we could feed him pumped milk. So we knew how much he was getting along with having him, um, take to the breast so that he could practice still using the breast. Um, cause the ultimate goal is to try to keep him breastfeeding if I could. Um, but he went all the way from being like normal weight to being in the third percentile. And he stayed there for, uh, at least a year and a half. Um, and we were going in every single week to get him weighed. And even when he went to solid food at about what, seven months, he did not start packing the weight on again. Um, it seemed like he wasn't falling asleep, but he would get tired out. He would take like three sucks and he'd be tired. He'd eat three bites of solid food and he'd be tired. And it wasn't sleepy tired. It was just like, I'm just done. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I need to rest or whatever. Um, and nothing we did seemed to pull him back in. Um, 
And the only thing that led me from that point, getting him past the, his kind of failure to thrive was his speech wasn't quite developing. He met all of his physical milestones on time, like sitting up, uh, crawling, rolling, standing with no problems. Uh, but when he was at about uh, 18 months, he was supposed to have, I think, like seven to 10 words. And he had seven, but only I could understand him. So we got First Steps, which is like an early intervention therapy program that every state has. Uh, sometimes they're called something different depending on the state. Okay. But in Indiana, it's called First Steps. And uh, they evaluated him and said they could do speech and occupational therapy. And the occupational therapist got us started with Pediasure and Benicalorie. And, and after a couple months of that, he got up to the 25th percentile. So Wow. Yeah. That was a good success then. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, I could breathe because you worry when they're in the, my other kids were like 80th and 90th percentile. So I'm like, I I said, we're like a bipolar uh, diet here. You know, I'm going to the store and ordering super fatty foods for him and super skinny foods for the rest of us. (laughs) Like what's going on? I see my child, did the mailman, you know, (laughs) so something with the mailman and not my husband. So (laughs) that's funny. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So then what were some other things that you noticed about him physically? So he, he always slept with his eyes open and he had very large eyes. Um, uh, We would joke that we knew he was fake sleeping because he would squeeze his eyes shut. And (laughs) we we said, ah, we know you're faking because you sleep with your eyes open all the time. (laughs) Like they're always open just a little bit. Um, His joints seemed very loose, almost like wet spaghetti. Um, he had very flat feet, his uh, chest was veiny and he had this really large, uh, hemangioma, which was right under one of his ribs. In fact, when we first saw it, we thought that he had cracked a rib. Um, it was probably the size of a softball and, um, it looked like a giant bruise. Um, and so they had to document it to make sure that if like he went to school and they saw it, they didn't worry that there was abuse in the house. It lasted, it stayed there for like I don't know, three years probably. And then finally it faded away all on his own. Um, but there was no injury that caused it. It just was there. And, you know, we didn't know what it was. We worried that something had happened. Could you explain what a hemangioma is? I think it's just like a collection of blood and, uh, blood bubbles. Like I have little cherry hemangiomas on my skin. Uh, so I don't know if part of that was like a hereditary thing. My dad had them too, but they look like little red dots on your body. And um, like me, if I, if I pick one open, the blood will come out and then the skin heals over it and then it fills back up again with blood. So you can get rid of them um, by you know, going to the dermatologist, getting them frozen, but sometimes they'll return. So I think with the one he had, it actually, they said usually by age seven, it goes away on its own. And it did. So, wow. Yeah. And I think, did you mention that he was always covered in bruises? Yes. He, he got hurt more than any of the other kids. They all could jump off the front patio and land on like the grass. And he would always look bruised afterwards. Um, they all went to a camp. I, I sometimes watch my, my niece and nephews. And so they all went to a summer camp together. So six of them all went off to a gymnastic indoor camp and there's like foam everywhere and pads and they all came back afterwards exhausted and smiling. They're like, that was great. Soren's like, this is the best time ever. I'm going back. 
he looked like he had take, gotten a bat taken to him. I mean, he was head to toe covered in bruises. Nobody else had one bruise on their body, but he looked awful. And I think it was the impact from jumping up and down and just, you know, any little trauma to the body, it showed on him. He just, you know, his blood vessels just pop and and then he's covered in bruises. So um, we had him one time strapped in at the breakfast table and our our breakfast table is like an oval shape. So it has a rounded um, edge all the way around, nothing sharp. Mm-hmm. And he's in the booster seat strapped in and he sneezed. And because he has loose muscles, his head went backwards and rocketed forward and hit on the edge of the table. And he started crying. And all of a sudden we see this goose egg start to form on his head and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And the skin right before our eyes split all the way open. Oh my gosh. And yeah. So we took him to the ER and um, we're like, oh my God, you know, he hit his head on the table and we're like, we think we need stitches or glue. We don't, we didn't know he had VEDS at the time. And so um, they didn't believe us that he had hit his head on a rounded wood table because they're like, it shouldn't have split open like that. I mean, surely he must have hit a piece of metal because his head, his head is split open. If he hit a rounded table edge, he would just get a bruise. Well, so that's another puzzle piece. Why, why did his skin do different than what a normal kid would do? So... Yeah. So is that what initially led to the the search for more answers or what what was it that finally led to Um somebody? so so that was some of it uh when he when he got done with first steps which they stop at age 3 um after that if they think you still need services you can go to a develop, developmental preschool uh which is paid for by the state it's public schooling uh, and so you get therapy there and you go to a preschool kind of setting. So he went to developmental preschool in the area here for about a year and a half. And then after that year and a half, they said they had a meeting for him and they said, well, he's done so well with his speech that he doesn't meet his speech diagnosis anymore. And that's the good thing. That means he's progressing. And I said, yeah, but his, his hand, when he holds a pencil, his thumb bends all the way backwards. And I'm like, you know, you're in school, you're going to be doing all this writing. He, surely we got to give him some sort of training and support to help him hold that pencil. And I, I could work at home with him, but he's going to be at school for eight hours a day. So if, you know, if he needs training, I think it's best served there. And, and I don't know how to do it. I don't know, you know, how to teach him how to hold it properly. And I know what he's doing is wrong right now, but I don't know how to change it because his muscles are doing what they want to do naturally. And they said, well, we can't do anything unless you have a different diagnosis. And not that they wanted me to just go searching all over, but they basically were trying to not give us things that we didn't need mm-hmm. at that moment. And so we went to a, a regular geneticist that um, some friends of ours had gone to and one of our family members. And um, he took a look at Soren and he's like, well, I think I'll test for Fragile X. And um, he did a blood test and it came back negative. And he said, well, um, I think it's probably like ADHD or autism that he has, but I don't know. Uh, you know, it seems like there's puzzle pieces here, but I can't figure it out. And I think that, you know, he's just going to live with this and you got to help him uh, figure this out. So, so I thought it was good. I thought, okay, well, maybe this is something we live with and I just need to go about and, and teach him how to open jars differently and, and hold his pencil the right way and, and how to not get bruised or do things that are going to hurt his body. And, um, and then 
um, the sc- I went back to school and told them and they said, yeah, well, you still don't have a diagnosis. <laughs> so I told our pediatrician and she said, don't go to that guy again. Go, go to this guy at this teaching hospital. And I found that that's the key with VEDS is that you don't want to go to just any hospital. It's mm-hmm. the teaching hospitals that seem to be the most open-minded, I think, and um, resourceful for rare conditions. So, um, so we went there and it was an older man and, and he looked at him and did a bait and scale to see test for bendiness. And, uh, he said he definitely has type three EDS, um, because he's got bendiness and this many joints and stuff. And, and then he, um, I, I said, well, does he have type four though? Cause I'd looked into it and he said, um, you know, I, it's so rare. I, I don't think that he would have it, but he does have some veininess in his chest and he has a high palate in his mouth. Um, so if you want to test for it, we can. And I'm like, yes, I want you to test for it. And it came back positive. And type four, just for anybody who's unaware of it, type four is the same as VEDS or vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So he came yeah. back positive for that. Correct. And how did that change your life? Um, so then we had to get tested, my husband and I, because if he had it, there was a 50% chance that one of us had it. And if one of us had it, then our other two children would have it. And so it's made me not be able to have patience when it comes to test results <laughs> because the whole summer was spent. And in, because of how insurance was with our policy, we had to wait until each test was done before the next one could start. And so we went in, I got, I got tested and we had to wait six weeks for those results to come back and it came back negative. So then my husband got tested and he had to wait six weeks to see if his came back. (laughs) So it was my, I was frayed just at my nerves were frayed by the end of the summer. And honestly, when they told me, I kind of, I I guess my brain thought he probably has it, but, um, because he kind of met the facial features, uh, if you can see a lot of VEDS patients resemble each other in some way with the large eyes, the narrow nose, the small chins, um, straight hair. Um, I hoped he had, he didn't have it, but in my gut, I suspected that he did. Um, but when they actually said, yes, he tested positive, it was as if somebody like pulled the rug out from under me and I fell into a big black hole. It was extremely depressing. Um, you mourn all the dreams and goals that you have for your kid. Uh, the limitless possibilities that you think of when, when someone's born into this world, I want them to be able to skydive if they want to. I want them to be able to become a firefighter if they want to. I want them to be able to do this and that. And it's like, I was suddenly served this platter of very specified uh, limitations that that he could do. And, and he was still alive, but it was so life changing that, that it was just hard to wrap my brain around at that moment to think about how different his life is going to be. I was so grateful that my husband and I were not diagnosed, not because I was scared to have it, but because it meant I, I didn't have my own struggle, I could fight for him. Mm-hmm. And I, ha- I wouldn't have to worry about me. I could focus 100% on him. So for that, I was grateful. But other times, I wish I had it so I could help him relate and say, you know what, it's okay. That happens to me too. And 
you just do this instead. Like, I wish I had that knowledge. Um, so for that, I wish I had it, um, you know, because there's something like I have asthma and my two boys have asthma and I handle things different than my husband with that condition. You know, I'm like, Oh, don't worry about it. Or I'll be like, he coughed twice. You better give him something right now. You know, my husband's like, he only coughed twice. And I'm like, he's starting an asthma attack. And he is, you know, I, I can, I know what it sounds like. I know what it, I, I know. And so there's a, a comfort of me knowing what it is and how to handle it firsthand that I can help my kids. Um, and I don't have that with this. So that's, that's hard too. And I wish I could take it from him. You know, you always feel like I want, I want to handle this. I know what I can handle and I don't want you to have to do this. I want to take this from you so that you, I can bear it for you, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was, that's hard to do too, to watch him have to do this and, and me have to watch it and not help him more than I can. So, so what kind of limitations does he have? Um, so they, they've told us he cannot lift more than five pounds. Um, he cannot do sit-ups, push-ups, bar hangs. Um, he cannot exert himself. So he can't join any team sports. He can swim and we have him in swimming classes. He's already, he knows every single stroke there is, but, um, he, you know, we have him in the classes for the cardio, um, you know, exercise that it does. It's actually one of the best that you can do because it's so safe on the joints and, mm -hmm. um, but he can't compete because then he pushes himself and he wants to win. So then he pushes really hard and you increase your blood pressure, which puts uh, trauma on the vessels. And so he can't do that. Um, no roller coasters. He can't dive off the diving board though. We have him do pencil dives where he jumps in and goes feet first um, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's, he'll get bruises on his feet, but he's not going to belly flop by like jumping straight in with his feet and he can't go off the high dive kind of thing. Um, so things like that, you know, no collision at, at recess, they all play this thing called Gaga ball. And I call it like the gladiator pit. Cause there's like 30 <laughs> kids in this. It's awful. It, there's like 30 kids in this wooden pit and it's like handball where you have to try to hit the ball waist level. And, um, the kids come out with bloody knuckles and just all tore up. And the nurse is like, it's the worst thing ever. I hate that thing. <laughs> and all, because all the kids play it and Soren can't because there's so many in there. Yeah. He, he is so lonely at recess because he's just watching, you know, and, and they're like, well, he could play in the place. Well, who wants to play in the place by themselves? You know, I mean, you'd rather cheer your friend on in something you can't do than then go slide down the slide all by yourself with nobody, you know, running after you and playing. So yeah. So it that's been a, a challenge. So does he uh, know that he has this? He knows he has it. He calls it his heart problem. Um, and now that he's nine, he's very much a boy. So he, I always joke that he's like Evil Knievel's little son <laughs> <laughs> because he's like an adrenaline junkie. And, um, you know, we let him ride a bike. We tell him to wear a helmet. But he wants to try to pop a wheelie. And I'm like, oh, come on, man. You know, <laughs> just go a little faster on the bike. You don't have to, like, try to pop wheelies and stunt on them. Um, he tries to lift his friend. And I'm like, you can't do that. I know you physically could, but it's not good for your body. Uh, so sometimes we'll say it's like smoking. Everybody can smoke. I mean, anybody could light a cigarette and put it to their mouth. But it doesn't mean you should. It's not good for you, right? So you have to kind of think of some of these things like that. Like it's like a cigarette just because you can do it. Doesn't mean it's good for you. you. You need to stop yourself, but that's so such a hard lesson to learn. 
you know? Oh, especially at the age of nine, I imagine. Yeah. And when all your friends are doing the same thing, you're like, oh yeah, me too. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I know that I was, I was pretty much an adrenaline junkie too. So yeah, it's, it's, it's it's really hard. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because we went, we started going to a psychologist for him and, um, the psychologist, she pointed out that like, I'm like, how do I stop him from, from wanting these things and doing this? And she said, you don't. But what you do is you you direct that energy into things that are safer for him. So like you go to the trampoline places like Sky Zone or whatever, and you try to go when there's less people there. Or you ask if if maybe they'll open it a half hour early and let him jump while there's not like a million kids in there. Mm-hmm. Or you take him rock climbing in the indoor rock walls where there's harnesses. Um, or you take him to a whole bunch of different playgrounds where it feels different and something new and exciting to explore. Uh, to get that energy and that adrenaline feel or horror movies, you know, put them in, watch them, let them watch scary movies or play scary video games to get that adrenaline feel without it being dangerous for him. Mm-hmm. So, so after diagnosis, his diagnosis and, you know, you didn't come back positive for it. Your husband didn't come back positive for it. How did you cope? Um, for about two weeks, I was not the same person that I am now or was, I, I was just, I was, I was done. I was, I was in the deep dark hole of depression. And, um, I remember the words that my husband said that pulled me out of it. And he said, I think I've lost you. Um, because I'm always, I'm always smiling. I'm always finding something funny or positive about a situation. And it was just all gone. And, you know, I, it's funny. That's when I talk about that part and the pain that I experienced from the diagnosis, that's when I, that's when I get teary eyed and emotional. (laughs) Um, you know, the rest of it I've, I've come to accept, but it's like, that takes me back every time. Um, I decided at that point that, um, I needed to make a no regrets list because, I couldn't always control what happened. I mean, life with this condition or life really with anything, there's only so much that you can control. I mean, mm-hmm. so much of it is just fate. I mean, and whatever happens, where however things are set out to be. Um, but if anything did happen to him, I wanted to not be like, I wish I would have, you know, oh, if I only had blah, blah, blah. So I made a list and, and once I did that and started conquering it, I, I think I've made peace with it now. So I had like, I wanted to get a medical ID bracelet for him, uh, take him to the best doctor. So we'd see Dr. Dietz, um, at Johns Hopkins. Uh, I wanted to raise awareness. So I write books. Um, and sometimes a character will have the EDS in it. Um, and I wanted to raise money for research. So we've been helping EDS network cares, um, through donations and different things that we do and stuff to try to help spread awareness of the condition. So Wow. And give him, give him the best life he could, you know, but not just him, but like all the kids. Cause you know, we might focus a hundred percent on him, but then what if my daughter has something awful happen to her and here we spent all our energy a hundred percent on him, but didn't give her enough time and attention. And then something happened to her. So we just really try to live very, uh, you know, thinking about things and, and trying to make it more memorable whatever instance it is, instead of just sitting around the house, Hey, let's like make jokes or let's like play a game or let's go and like plant something and do something a little more than just, we're just going to plop in front of the TV kind of thing. Yeah. 
Well, so. That makes sense. So your no regrets list, is that kind of like a list of things that you want to do? Is it kind of like a bucket list? Um, it's stuff that I just need to do. It's just going to happen. I mean, um, um, it's, it's attainable. It's stuff that I just started doing immediately. Like, um, you know, like raising awareness, we go and talk at, um, the med school in town and talk to genetic students about, uh, getting diagnosed. We talk to people that are in genetic counseling classes as well to teach them like how to present the information to patients in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, we went and talked to first responders, firefighters, uh, about the condition. So they're aware that even though somebody looks completely normal on the outside, they actually like somebody who has VEDS, they're so fragile, you know, I mean, it's almost like they're made out of Elmer's glue, like a house made out of Elmer's glue instead of wood screws and, and, uh, glue and, and, you know, strong supports. It's, Mm -hmm. they look exactly the same on the outside, but one can get hurt so easily if you make the wrong move on them and just raising that awareness, you know, it's, I think it's so needed. It's definitely very needed. It's incredible that you guys are able to do that that much yeah yeah it's you know um it's it's so funny because you never know where you're gonna meet somebody and and how it's going to um I guess phase them in some way uh when Soren was really young at the elementary school I think he was maybe first grade in a school had found out he had the condition they decided to do a talent show and then get donate the money that they had raised from it to Eilers-Danlos Network Cares and um when when the show was over, they asked me to go up and speak on the stage for about five minutes just about the condition and how we got diagnosed. And then after the show, a neighbor of mine who I'd never met before, but we were all in like a community page, she private messaged me and said, I, I'm in shock over here because I think my son has the same condition your son has. And I feel like this whole time, his whole life, I've been looking at these puzzle pieces and couldn't figure out how they went together. And I just started to dismiss them as, oh, he'll just have to live with this. But after hearing your story, I'm really thinking I need to go in and see a doctor. And so we connected her with our geneticist that properly diagnosed Soren, and he ended up having Marfan's. And wow. um, but they had no idea before that, and so now he's, you know, getting treated and he's getting proper care and stuff. So it was pretty amazing. Yeah, that sounds really amazing when that happens. Those kind of connections. Yeah can just yeah. be life-changing. You feel bad because you don't want them to have to deal with something complicated like that, you know? Yeah. But honestly, I mean, knowledge is power. If you know, you can make better choices mm-hmm. and you can make things, choices that can be life-saving and give you a better quality of life. So even though it's a really hard diagnosis to digest, I mean, in the end, you know, I'm making choices now that he's on medications that can help prevent some of the issues that come up with feds. And we're monitoring him. So we're kind of keeping an eye, watching and waiting. We're making better life choices. Um, we're doing things that, that could hopefully prolong an incident from happening. And maybe science will catch up in time that, that he can have a longer life and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I um, certainly hope so. Yeah, there's a lot changing. I think ever since, I think when CRISPR came around the corner, it changed a lot of things uh, for a lot of scientists. I don't think any of them expected that kind of a treatment to come out of the woodwork and stuff. And, and Jennifer Duodna from Berkeley created it and figured it out. And it just, I think it's just going to take off from there. It just needs some time and, and people to uh, peruse it and figure out what, how it's going to help people. Yeah, I really, I really hope so. 
Thank you so much for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And make sure to tell Sora and I said hello. <laughs> okay, I will. I will. Will do. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. This was Staying Connected. Stay tuned for more interviews with other people with vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.